Here's the interesting thing about Anabaptist theologies. It's not just a different theology. It's a different approach to the topic of theology itself. Yeah. And that is, um, you know, and early Anabaptists saw that some of the smartest, most intellectually acute thinkers in the church also missed some of the most basic teaching of Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm. uh, which Protestants would now agree, but 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 it's it's a, a it might not be fun to talk about. And that is that people like Luther and Calvin, some of the greatest minds the church has ever had, thought that it was okay to kill people in the name of Jesus. To that Jesus podcast. I believe that the Church of Jesus is the primary institution God established to reach the world. So, in the next few episodes, we will be exploring a few ecclesiological topics. I grew up in a conservative Anabaptist Christian church on the mission field in Kenya, Africa. Now, the Anabaptists were a fringe group of radicals who came out of the Protestant Reformation. Much of my theological foundation has been shaped by the values of these radical reformers. The subset of Anabaptism that I was raised in is called the Beachy Amish Mennonite Church, which is quite conservative. In my teens and early 20s, I detested what seemed to be arbitrary, man-made rules that were forced on me, so I ended up leaving this denomination. However, in the past few years, I've been rediscovering the beauty of the core values that the original Anabaptists uncovered 500 years ago. I especially appreciate the power of nonviolence and a Jesus-centered theology. I decided to reach out to Bruxy Cavey, a neo-Anabaptist author, speaker, and pastor from Canada, to pick his brain. Here's our conversation. So what key elements of what it means to follow Jesus did the early Anabaptists rediscover? Yeah, great question. So uh, you have the Protestant Reformation in the early 1500s, and they got the Bible into the hands of the people, which is beautiful. Anabaptists read the Bible and said, thank you, our Protestant forebears, and now we're reading the Bible and we're falling in love with Jesus. And it was this renewed, passionate refocusing on Jesus at the center of the Bible that was at the heart of the Radical Reformation, which is what uh, Anabaptism was. So Protestant Reformation says, let's get the Bible into the hands of the people. And that was an appropriate first step to, as they were protesting some of the abuses of the Catholic Church to say, let's get back to the Bible, an appropriate first step for the Protestant Reformation. But then the Radical Re- Reformers said, yes, now let's get Jesus back in the center of the Bible. And when you do that, it might, it's, see, this is the strange thing, is that probably, I, I couldn't think of any Christian, Protestant or Catholic, who wouldn't say, we should have Jesus at the center of our faith. That just sounds like something every Christian should say. But the the radical reformers really saw that putting the Bible at the center of our faith wasn't enough, because you could pull from anywhere in the Bible to justify anything. You could pull from the Old Testament to justify violence and a concept of the kingdom of God being an earthly geopolitical kingdom that needs to be defended through violence. And and so uh, just saying we want the Bible at the center is not is not enough. And, and even a Christian who pays lip service to saying, well, Jesus at the center of my faith, unless they're actually using their Bible that way, 
Anabaptists would challenge them and say, uh, you're not putting Jesus at the center of your faith. And one of the things we can look for in someone's life is that they will take some of his basic, most basic teachings seriously, like the Sermon on the Mount. We, would, we should see a movement taking shape in the form of Jesus and his love of neighbor and his love of enemy and being willing to lay his life down for his enemy rather than lay his enemy's life down. Yeah. Uh, this becomes a fundamental kind of um, uh, uh, litmus test for Anabaptists to say, are you really following Jesus? Uh, are you taking his nonviolent enemy love seriously? And that, that, was, that was a primary shift for them. Also, the other thing that they introduced, of course, was uh, the idea that faith should be a matter of personal engagement and personal choice, not just inherited from your parents. Again, most Christians would agree with this, but infant baptism at the time happened at the same ceremony as your citizenry of the country. So if you were born in Germany, you became a citizen of the country at the same time you became a member of the church at your infant baptism. And the, the idea of church and state being fused together was uh, just accepted as normative in multiple Christian countries. So Anabaptists came up with this radical idea. And again, today it doesn't sound so radical because Lots of Christians agree, and that's the idea of the separation of church and state. So they said, just because you're born in France doesn't mean you should be a Catholic automatically. Just because you're born in Germany doesn't mean you should be a Lutheran automatically. Parents should raise their kids in the faith, yes, but then each person should make their own choice. Am I going to follow? And that's what baptism is about. And yeah. so believer's baptism also was a was not just a, an argument about a symbol. It was about faith being a personal commitment. We live in the age of ex-evangelicals and deconstruction. So I'm wondering, what do you think a modern reiteration of Anabaptism has to offer young people like myself? Mm, yeah. Uh, really, I think there is nothing and no one to ever, ever interact with this planet like Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. And when we peel away a lot of the trappings, almost like the tinsel on a really tacky Christmas tree, you know, that's been overdone, and you just get rid of a lot of the silliness and craziness, there's something of absolute, I think, stunning beauty at the center of it all. And so I think this is where a Jesus-centered faith can become both attractive to non-Christians in a way they didn't think the Christian religion in general was very attractive, but when they engage with Jesus, I think there's something attractive there they didn't realize was at the core of it all. It can engage non-Christians that way, but then also Christians can be re-engaged with their own faith. Say, okay, now I'm ready to re-approach. And maybe I did need to jettison whatever that was that I called my faith prior to this. And now I'm kind of taking a new approach with Jesus at the center. And so it's both a renewal movement for Christians as well as a, an invitational movement for non-Christians to consider Jesus for the first time. And I think then there's also less of an us versus them in evangelism. We get to come to our non-Christian friends and say, I am just discovering this aspect of my own faith fresh. Come and join me. It's not like I'm, a, I'm in the light and you're in the darkness. I have the truth. You have error. Uh, but rather... I am just discovering something like I'm in the middle of reading a good book. Uh, would you, you want to read it with me? It's that kind of we're on the same team here. I just want to share with you what I'm currently learning as well. Yeah. Yeah. So as an Anabaptist, do you subscribe to Martin Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone? Yeah, sure. Like, uh, yes. And, and yet, like many questions and conversations, how we define terms can... Yeah can really, you know, really make a difference. <clears throat> so 
Yes, an Anabaptist, I think, would have no uh, qualms with the Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone. We would just say uh, a couple of things. Number one is the gospel is more than justification. It's also regeneration. I mean, it's many things, a sanctification and glorification. But, but Anabaptists in the Radical Reformation tended to emphasize regeneration as opposed to emphasizing justification. Now, both Protestants and Anabaptists uh, accepted the full nature of the gospel. It's both justification and regeneration, sanctification, et cetera. It's just a matter of emphasis, but sometimes what you emphasize can really lead to different places. Mm -hmm. And so while the Protestant Reformation emphasized justification by faith alone, which is a declaration, an imputed righteousness, which means a declared righteousness. God knows you are a sinner, but he declares you innocent because of the blood of Christ. And, and what Anabaptists emphasize is that God not only declares or justifies us, declares us innocence and imputed righteousness, but an imparted righteousness. That is, God actually makes you righteousness, righteous. Of course, he declares you righteous. He declares you righteous because he's made you righteousness. You've been born as a new person. You are cleansed. Uh, you have a fresh life. The old covenant promise that when the new covenant comes, God will put a new heart in you and a new spirit and God's own spirit. He'll give you a heart of flesh instead of the heart of stone, that there'll actually be this inner transformation. No other religion promises this. It front end loads uh, the, the enlightenment that other religions are working towards. It says you're going to be completely transformed as a person right at the beginning of your faith journey. And then it's up to you to just live that out as a new yeah. person. And so that was an emphasis that the radical reformers brought to the table. Uh, so we would say amen to justification by faith alone. We just say, do not stop there. Uh, talk about regeneration and the radical nature of the new covenant that cleanses you. When you don't, you will find that sometimes within Protestant circles, they will still tend to emphasize uh, in present tense, how I am a sinner, how I am uh, uh, totally depraved and I am in need of, and the Apostle Paul, I think, twice talks of himself in present tense as a sinner, as an illustration. I'm the worst of all sinners. And um, and yet most of the time when he talks about himself, he talks about himself as someone who is no longer a sinner, but who has now been fully changed. So in one sense, yes, I'm a sinner because I sin. But I think Romans 7 captures it where he says, he says, you know, I sin, I struggle, I don't do the things I should do, I do the things I shouldn't do. And then, then twice in Romans 7, he corrects himself and he says, Although I sin, it, I, the ego, doesn't actually sin. It's sin living in me that sins. Mm -hmm. And he sees himself as a person who is sinless, but who is encased in the flesh. So there's a kind of I that includes the flesh that says, yes, I still sin. But there's a kind of I that is the core of who I am, my heart, that says I'm sinless. I don't sin. I've been totally made perfect in Christ. And, and so I don't sin. It's sin living in me that sins, is how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans 7. So I think uh, Anabaptists would want to make that shift. And the other thing is, I'll just add to it, is the word faith. To um, Classically, of course, Lutheran was processing so, Luther was processing so many, so many um, doctrinal truths that for him, faith was a realization of something and an embrace of something intellectually and with your heart. Mm -hmm. And Anabaptists would say yes to that. They would just want to add, don't only embrace this with your heart and with your head, it's with your life. So they saw faith as following, the other F word, that the two were a mesh together. It's not faith plus works like a separate thing. It's it's works shows that your faith is alive. We're saved by faith, but works is so enmeshed with Faith is following. They just saw that as it'd be weird to say, I have faith in Jesus. I just don't follow him on this or that or the other point. What do you think James meant when he said we are not justified by faith alone? Hmm. 
Yes, I think I think he is correcting how people use their words. James loves words. Actually, he's the one person who uses the word religion positively in the whole Bible, right? Mm-hmm. And then he does a wordplay with the word religion in chapter one. He says the only religion that God cares about is, and he doesn't list any of the religious things. Read your Bible regularly. Go to church regularly. Uh, um, uh, assent to the creeds, and, and there's no there's no religious things that we would think of as religious. He says, you know, help people who are in need and don't copy the world. Live a countercultural life. That's the only religion. That's the only way God uses the word religion positively. So, so I think as there is a growing movement of people saying, "Ah, faith. I just have to believe something, and it doesn't matter how I live." James uses that language. It says, "Well, if that's what you think faith is, then that faith won't save you. You'll need faith plus works." But he goes on to explain that it's it's the works that actually make faith alive. So in the end, it's a, re- it's a rethinking. He's helping people rethink what faith actually is. If you just think it's mental belief, then, yeah, you're like the demons who believe but do nothing about it. Yeah, so would you agree with sort of a reform perspective that when he was using the word, it's the same Greek word for justified, but they would say it's being used in a different way. Would you agree with that? Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about that. <clears throat> I, I don't tend to uh, pick fights with Protestants when I don't have to. So, <laughs> sure, we'll say yes. <laughs> Any Baptist would just want to say, however you work that out, are you following Jesus? Amen. And here's the interesting thing about Anabaptist theologies. It's not just a different theology. It's a different approach to the topic of theology itself. Yeah. And that is, um, you know, and early Anabaptists saw that some of the smartest, most intellectually acute thinkers in the church also missed some of the most basic teaching of Jesus of Nazareth, mm-hmm. uh, which Protestants would now agree, but 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 it's it's a, a it might not be fun to talk about. And that is that people like Luther and Calvin, some of the greatest minds the church has ever had, thought that it was okay to kill people in the name of Jesus. Yeah. Non-Christians and um, and fellow Christians or people who claim to be Christian, but they thought were heretics. If they disagreed over a doctrinal issue, if they disagreed, they thought it was okay to kill someone. And all of us, I think, today would say, that's so far off the mark. That really misses the mark. But we'd make excuses. Uh, that were They were a product of their time or they didn't. Well, Anabaptists were a product of the same time. Yeah. They, just, they just read the Bible and said, there's no way to justify this. The call of Christ is a radical countercultural call. So Anabaptists didn't probably in the end have just inherited a, a tradition that says we're not, we, we don't care to argue about some of the details of how people mince words as much because we, some of the best word mincers of Christian history have missed the really basic discipleship stuff. And so Anabaptists tend to take it back to just what's your next step with Jesus? That's yeah. the most thing in your life right now. Yeah. So that brings me to my next question. Uh, you know, you're a strong proponent of Christian nonviolence, which I think is awesome. Uh, but how is holding that position relevant if we will likely never face a military draft anyways? Yeah, good, good. Um, I think on a couple of points, the commitment to nonviolence helps someone grow as a disciple of Jesus because it's one of those clear teachings of Jesus, but it's a hard teaching to think uh, we might we might not face a military draft, but all of us like to see ourselves as the confrontational hero if someone were to break into our house or 
um, or, or, or we saw someone committing a crime. And, and so we, we see ourselves as the superhero at the center of our own narrative. And because of that, I think a commitment to absolute nonviolence, what that does, it doesn't mean being passive. It means I'm going to find creative ways to, to disrupt the narrative. I'm going to insert myself into the narrative, but I'm going to be more creative than just trying to fight fire with fire or violence with violence. And it might work or it might fail. Statistically, by the way, nonviolent intervention works more often than violent intervention. That's a whole other conversation. But we don't do this just because it works. It might work. It might not work. Um, it, but it, we do this because I'm a disciple of Jesus and showing enemy love is ultimately important. And if someone's going to die in a scenario, it's better than I die than, than the perpetrator because they're likely not someone who knows Jesus. And and so we want them to live as long as possible to hear the gospel and be saved. Uh, when a when a soldier picks up a gun, if, if it's a Christian says I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna pick up a gun, that Christian is gonna shoot only one of two kinds of people. If they shoot a non-Christian, that person they're saying your chance to hear the gospel is over. As of now, I've decided that. If they shoot a fellow Christian, they're they're saying the war between our earthly kingdoms is more important than our unity as brothers in Christ. And so they're abandoning a uh, fundamental principle of the kingdom of Christ. Either way, there's nobody on the planet you can shoot if you are if you really love Jesus. But you're mm -hmm. right. We might not be called into the army, but when we, I think, lay our own, uh, our, our own uh, instinct for self-preservation down and we resolve that with Jesus, even if I'm never called into the army, it's now actually changed how I live in my day-to-day -day life. I don't have to win the argument all the time. I don't have to, because there's other forms of violence. You know, I don't have to yeah. come out looking good with my words because I put that person in their place. There's other kinds of guns we can fire, you know, and bullets we can shoot. And Twitter guns. Yeah, yes, yes. And, and so it changes how we interact. I mean, it has the potential to change how we interact with others. Peace becomes kind of an indigenous value in my soul so that I can interact with others with less anger and with less um, killer instinct, you know, because I'm laying that aside. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so you pastor a very large church. Uh, my friends and I are promoting sort of a house church model that's similar to what Francis Chan started in California. Um, when I first scripted this, I said Francis Chan is doing in California, but now he's moving to Asia, so that's already outdated. <laughs> By the time this comes out, he might be moving to North Korea, I'm not sure. But yeah, and also recently, I, I finally got around to picking up Frank Viola's Pagan Christianity, and, and yeah, I've been really enjoying that. So what do you think, as a, I guess you're a megachurch pastor, what do you think about the house church movement? Yeah, in Canada, I guess five or six thousand is is a mega church. I don't know. I think in the states, that's like a small mid-sized hatchback. But um, the it, it's interesting because what the meeting house looks like from the outside in might be a large multi-site mega church, but from the inside out, we see ourselves differently. We see ourselves very similarly to you as a house church movement. Uh, we have uh, a couple of hundred house churches that are spread out over a region that have. Um, they have all the marks of what a New Testament church would be. So that's where scripture is studied, fellowship and prayer and baptism and communion. And if we shut down our Sunday services, we would still be a fully functional New Testament movement of, of house churches. We've just, we just supplement that. We see the Sunday services like the dietary supplement. We, we have noticed that within this culture, and some of it is just being culturally adaptive, that within this culture, there's a certain kind of person 
who will have an easier time making their first step into investigating Jesus, coming to a larger group where they can just sit down and listen to a lecture, uh, hear some people sing some songs, and have a typical Sunday morning church experience. Now, we know that that's not the fullness of what New Testament means by church. So for us, that's like having a it's having a program on the side for yeah. for people to come in. And so that just is a culturally adaptive way for people to connect. It, and there's just a certain kind of person has a hard time making their very first step going into someone's home where they feel like everyone knows one another and it's private space. So our Sunday morning uh, is like our front porch for our community. Come and hear and listen and feel welcome. Uh, but in the end, we want to move people towards a house church experience as well. Yeah. So what do those house church gatherings look like? Are, are they weekly? What sort of activities happen in them? Yeah, yeah those are weekly. And so there might be there's a time of worship and it, it may be prayer or um, a, a time of extended meditative prayer or singing, etc. And then um, there'll be welcome and announcements like there might be a, a Sunday church context. And then there'd be a time of extended Bible study, scripture study, um, after the after that uh, scripture study, we break off into huddles or very small groups of three or four maximum people who uh, get to know each other very well. And that those are where they're praying together and they're talking about their struggles together. This is where you build a real close relationship and can really challenge someone and say, how are you doing in that area of your life? You said that you were struggling and ask the hard questions. And so our house churches break down even to these smaller discipleship units. And then... Um, there may be potlucks and other social things as well. And then serving the community in some way. We encourage all of our home churches to volunteer at a, uh, a compassion agency in the neighborhood or find some other way that they can move out and serve the community as well. Yeah. How, how does the Eucharist fit into that? Is that in the house gatherings or is that in the larger church context? How often? Do it both. So we'll have house churches can have, uh, have communion, the Lord's Supper, or Eucharist as often as they like. And then um, uh, we'll have it occasionally on a Sunday morning as well, mm-hmm. just to let people see what they're missing. Yeah. And that's, that's the same with baptisms. Uh, all, all of that happens in home church, but we'll also occasionally have it on a Sunday morning as well. So like the home church worship, is that, I, it probably varies from, from group to group, I'm assuming, but is that sort of liturgical? Like, are you, are there chairs facing the front or is it just kind of like a bunch of people in a circle with a guitar? How, how does that look sort of? In our home churches, yeah, it'll be different. Um, we encourage them to have a time of worship, and however they want to do that, is that if that's what you were asking, was for the house yeah. church? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So some will have just a guitar, and they'll be sitting in a circle, and others will have more instruments involved, and some will say, we really are terrible at singing at our house church, so we try one or two songs a cappella. Otherwise, we have an extended time of like meditative prayer, or we just speak out praises, or we, we read a psalm. Yeah, uh, so we encourage them to have some form of worship, uh, depending on what gifts happen to be in that house church. It may look different house church to house church. Mm-hmm. And are your churches, whether the large group or the small group, would the gifts of the Spirit be operating sort of in a charismatic sense? Or uh, I, I know that a lot of a lot of groups are are not cessationist on paper. Like this is sort of how the church I'm part of. We're not cessationist on paper. We're technically continuous, but it never happens. There's never tongues or anything. So what does that look like? We'll find variety from home church to home church, and some are quite charismatic, and others are mildly charismatic with the gifts kind of operating, at least the, the more expressive uh, demonstrative gifts a- operating um, on the side, but they're there, but in a 
a less formatted way as part of the service. And then you'd have others who probably are similar to you, to what's been your experience in that they're they're theologically embracing of all the gifts. They just don't all function all the time. And we we really see variety from home church to home church. And so we teach on it and we equip our elders. Those who lead our home church, we call our elders or pastors of little churches. They're not just small group leaders. They're our pastors. And we have a couple hundred pastors in that sense of leading these groups. And these elders, as we call them, will train them and encourage them. But then each home church does have its own its own flavor as far as its relationship with the gifts. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, thanks for letting me be nosy with your church community up there. Love it. Uh, that's so good, man. And I love uh, your, that you're you're heading down that path. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I know it's not necessarily the model that's going to change anything, uh, but I do think that the structure and model we we use does have a significant effect on the, the faith of those you know part of the church. Yeah, it's true. Whether it is a top-down or an us-versus-them clergy-laity distinction, or whether we really are modeling ourselves in a way that reinforces what what we claim, is that uh, we all have our role to play in the body of Christ. And that's not just sending your tithes and offerings to support the big church, but it's being fully engaged, fully involved. Somehow turning the chairs to face one another, mm-hmm. I think that's where real church kicks in, you know, in the New Testament sense. Mm -hmm. So we'll tell people that on Sunday mornings. We're glad you're here. There's nothing wrong with us all gathering and facing the same direction to hear the paid professional holy man lead a Bible study. I mean, that's that Sunday morning thing we call a sermon and how it works. Nothing wrong with it, but that's not the fullness of what church is. And so we're constantly using our Sunday morning to then encourage people, thank thank them that they're there, but then encourage them to get the full experience of church by attending home church later that week. You said that your communities are are reaching out locally. Um, is, Is there you know, frontier missions to unreached people groups. Do you guys focus on that at all? We do have some home churches who are um, very engaged with local community centers that are working with Muslims and uh, people who are just new to the country from various backgrounds. Um, And we, uh, our home church that has been uh, for a number of years, we work, we volunteer with a, a house for refugees and many of them would be non-Christian. And so that gives us an opportunity to both practically serve, but then also to build relationships with people outside of our faith, to uh, engage with them in the name of Jesus, to just love them in the name of Jesus and be open to conversations with them. So compassion and evangelism don't have to be two separated you know, yeah. uh, boxes that we check, but just can happen, I think, so naturally when we're, when we're loving people who are different than us. Great. Well, thanks so much for, for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I love what you got going on. I wish you all the best, man. Appreciate it. Take care. Okay, see you, Titus. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of That Jesus Podcast. The music on this podcast was created by my friend Kyle Skriloff. You can find more of his beats by searching for Captive Music on SoundCloud. See you next time.